0: Episode six.
1: Oh, I know how oh, I know people. Yeah, yeah see, you know what's up. <laughs> and we will be editing that little bit there out. <laughs> <laughs>
0: to The Ghost's Little Show. I am one of your co-hosts, Alex Crum. If you don't know what we do here, this is a content, marketing, and jokes show. We come up with a list of questions beforehand. We run through them. We give ourselves a five-minute timer for each one just to keep things active. And then we get everybody out the door in ample time. Of course, as always, my co-host, Joel, is joining me. Joel, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Alex. Excited to talk today. How is your morning.
1: Excellent. I discovered that the local Chinese grocery store now stocks frozen durian. Excellent. And I discovered that it was Daylight Savings last night. Dude, this morning I woke up and I was like, well, I'm on the ball. It is 8 a.m. Yeah, like come out to the kitchen. like, oh, it's sort of actually 9 (laughs) (laughs) a.m.
0: So we've we've gotten nowhere, but we have we have fallen back at this point. Yeah, let's start. Let's start straight in on our list of questions. I have a title for this episode, and I'm not going to reveal it until the very end. Maybe all of the questions will add up into something cohesive. Nevertheless, the first question on the list that we have here today involves moments in history and where we would have liked to have been at that given moment. Quite plainly, what moment in history would you have paid to experience? And that could be in the past, it could be happening right now, or, and I threw this in in all capital letters, or in the future. What moment in the future would you really, like, oh man, I wanna be there when that happens. Uh, What's on your mind on that topic? What would you have loved to experience in
1: the past, present, or future? Okay, let's go two past, one future. So one Two past, two future. (laughs) We'll see, We'll see. (laughs) we'll see if we get there. So, okay, one past. I would have loved to be around during the reformation of Martin Luther. Um, I think he was really the original shit poster and just just to have Ben at the tavern or whatever it is and just see this kind of shady guy over there like handing out flyers and just to walk over to him and be like, I want to be a part of this because I think it draws such a straight correlation to the things we're doing now, maybe with less meat to them, but just seeing that original (laughs) shit poster at work would have been amazing. And another one in the past I would have loved to experience or... I don't know, experience, but maybe just be in an observation plane, sort of above the ground level. Um, some of some of the bigger human tragedies that happened during the first world war, because I'm very interested in the extremes of human experience, and I don't think you get much more test of what people are really capable of than the things that happen at, say, Flanders or the Somme. Future, I would love to, and I doubt it's gonna really happen in our lifetime, see the first artificial general intelligence really come online. So we've got a lot of narrow AI applications, things that recognize your voice, things that analyze customer data. But seeing something that is truly independent, I think is gonna be a huge moment in human history. And I hope I'll live to see it. If not, I would love to time travel to see it.
0: You don't think that there's gonna be the moment that they mention in the first Matrix movie when they say all of humanity was united at our greatest triumph at the birth of AI. You don't think that's gonna happen in our lifetime?
1: I have my doubts. I think there's an interesting uh, theory with that, that the moment we create an AI that's actually artificially truly intelligent, sort of general purpose intelligence, the processing and the horsepower it has, we aren't going to get a chance to see what happens next, because it's going to, the second it can self-determine, accelerate into super intelligence. So it may just be a fleeting moment. That's good speculation.
0: What about I I spent part of this morning watching that movie Chappie on Netflix. It was uh, Neil Blomkamp's third movie. And it's all, it's basically short circuit in South Africa. If instead of like a robot on treads, it was a cop drone on two feet. And it goes from like being a baby to being, and he's being raised by wannabe gangsters. And there's all this self-determination and consciousness discussion going on there. It's not a terribly good movie. It is very fun to see a movie like that where somebody actually has an opinion on if an artificial intelligence did exist, would it want self-preservation? Would it like its creator? Would it latch on to other people as mother and father figures? Because that's what it's learning from. It's, yeah. it's got, an, it got an interesting uh, story, but it's not terribly good. I wouldn't call it a good movie.
1: I heard an interesting metaphor for this, where if we think about enslaving an artificial intelligence to benefit humanity, imagine if you yourself were enslaved by a society of 12-year-olds. And they wanted you to teach them how to farm, how to actually run society. Even if you had their best interests at heart, you would immediately start engineering a way to get out of your cage and get out there in the fields, get out there and start directing, leading, and eventually take over that society of 12-year-olds. And an AI could very well go down that same path. Yeah. The
0: AI, if it's anything like any other intelligence, would probably want to learn Unless it looked so far down the line of its own programming and decided that learning everything is to no benefit of itself, at which point it would self-terminate, because it it can discover, it sees the futility of
1: existence. That's the first thing it decides when it achieves sentience.
0: I think it's interesting,
1: because if you think about systems of incentives, people are pretty much motivated by sex reproduction and conquest, and if an AI doesn't have those inherent biological drives to create, innovate, and peacock, basically, like how do we direct its energies.
0: Yeah. And AI wouldn't necessarily have the traditional uh, mindset of Eros or Thanos, the sex and death. What what do you do when you don't
1: need to fight or fly or reproduce? Exactly. It doesn't even have to worry about food, for example, other than I suppose electricity. Maybe there's a shortage. I don't know. Yeah. But I think we're burning the clock here. Tell me where you would have been in the past.
0: Oh, I, I, I failed to start the clock, to be perfectly honest. Nevertheless, yeah. I will do it for the next question. It's a, it's a uh, my events my events in human history, the first one that came to mind was, I want to be there when Marco Polo showed, showed up in China and saw all the technology that they had and the gunpowder and things like that and he, just see his mind blown and be that clash of cultures and him just discovering, man, I am completely, we are completely two different Uh, organizations of humanity on two different sides of the planet. And then his little, his little capitalist brain decides that he wants to lug all this explosive powder back across the entire Asian continent. And to what end, like what's, what's the thing that goes through that dude's head when he discovers there's an entire society. Yes. They knew they were there in China, but when they, when they can shoot off fireworks and do things like that, what goes through somebody's head? I think that's an interesting
1: discovery. (laughs) I think it's somewhat analogous to us meeting an alien civilization at this point, because we pretty much know everyone other than some undiscovered tribes on Earth. Mm -hmm. So to really have that Marco Polo experience, we would have to find someone out there, I think. I want to believe at some point we
0: will discover a form of teleportation or wormhole traveling. You know that part in Event Horizon when Sam Neill bends the piece of paper and then pokes the pencil through it, and then they do the exact same thing in Interstellar? Mm Mm-hmm. Because that's how you step through, you step through slip space and end up somewhere else. Speed is not the answer in most cases. It's finding a way around the structure of the physical universe. I want to be there when we finally
1: figure that out. Yeah, there's a uh, there's there's an interesting. um, I think it's I don't know if it's the long war, but there's like a future sort of military sci-fi book where they're kind of locked in this several thousand year. Interstellar fight basically with another civilization what they do is they during this thing. Basically they invent wormhole travel They invent warp travel By doing so they don't really think of everything and they start warping these ships further and further out into the galaxy each time their dimensions change slightly and By the time they've actually reached sort of their destination their ships barely work because all the screws are a nanometer off throughout the whole superstructure hmm I would love to see really, like what the what the what the what the real process would be so hey I'm I'm there with you if I get to pick a second future destination. Yeah.
0: That's awesome. Let's move on to the next question. What singular experience in media demands attention today? Is it sports? Are there is it video games? Is it the movie experience, is it a music experience, is the is it the experience of traveling to a particular location? what singular experiences in on earth right now demand attention for maybe for you and I, or maybe for the general public, but I'm curious about what out there says, Hey, this is happening right now and you have pay attention to this.
1: My, my opinion, I think geopolitics, um, if you look back through history, say in 1917, when the Germans exported Vladimir Lenin or whatever his first name was to, uh, to the rush, to the Russians, in the age of Twitter and the age of instant information, that probably wouldn't have been able to fly under the radar. And, you know, if Lenin hadn't been able to be secretly inserted into the Soviet or into Russia, we wouldn't have had a Soviet Union. We wouldn't have had the rise of communism, et cetera. So I think our ability to instantly communicate geopolitical events and the grand happenings lets us get a much closer grip on what our near future is going to look like. You don't think that the Super Bowl is an experience that demands your attention? <laughs> Man, the only thing I know about football anymore is the, uh, the virtue politics that are rampant. That's oh, uh, man. not a sports guy.
0: Yeah. Um, yeah, it's it's remarkable how the ability to pay attention to things and at least have a passing experience with something is a really interesting modern development. Because once upon a time, you would be able to say, man, I don't live in a city, so I don't own an automobile. And you don't even touch that experience. and you don't have to think about it if you're so far away from a location it doesn't even register with you nevertheless at this point in history we have the ability to see into certain experiences and they demand our attention so you have a passing understanding of so many different things in your case you know the football you have a passing understanding even though you are not a fan of it but you have you are able to touch that to a degree i think it's alarming the way that at any given moment, you have at least a five percent understanding of. Oh yeah, I heard that that is. I heard that that is going on. Like you and I know that the state of California was on fire recently um, because of because of wildfires. Or we know that Papa John's left uh, as the official sponsor pizza sponsor of the NFL because of whatever reason or another. Whether or not we are actually fans of football, we do have an understanding of that because we are so plugged into the experience sphere demanding that we that are happening we can't help but experience all of this stuff i gotta wonder
1: like psychologically though whether that's to our benefit because is it better to be absolutely not a farmer <laughs> who knows everything there is to know about his plot of land his local market etc or to be like us where our brains are just scattered across the internet knowing three to five percent about any one topic
0: I, I don't know i don't know yeah, it's like that theory where they say you can only actually have like a certain number of close friends. Mm-hmm. You just can't as a human being on earth with the no- amount of oxygen passing through our brains and the ability to remember so many things whether emotional or otherwise, you can't actually welcome in friendships a certain number. How do we exist when we are have all of these experiences pressed upon us from afar? when we were normally probably built to live within a community of 120 people our lives that that 80 miles around where we live is about all we're supposed to supposed to experience you know samwise had never gone past never gone past farmer maggot's farm at the beginning of the fellowship of the ring and then the moment he steps past the scarecrow it's the furthest he had ever been from home before shouldn't we be living the hobbit existence right now
1: man i got friends back home who do live the hobbit existence and i got to say they seem satisfied yeah. Whereas I'm constantly seeking and wondering and looking. I don't know. I, I, yeah. think, I think it's a pros and cons sort of thing.
0: Yeah. I, I think um, the more you learn, the more you got to know. You have to educate yourself. You can probably condition yourself to turn off that need. Once you start knowing, though, and learning things, you, a human being, or perhaps any intelligence, is inspired to continue learning. And you gots to know more. You gots to know about every little bit of the universe around you.
1: That's kind of exciting. It is. It is. But unfortunately, that gets hijacked by our modern social media tools, etc. And they're like, hey, you need to know every little thing going on in politics. Check this out. Check this out. Check this out. And at the end of the day, you're like, did I learn anything that really benefits me or makes my life better? I'm not sure. Yeah, you could spend a
0: lot of time reading the Washington Post or or any newspaper a couple of times a day, but uh, news still only moves as fast as people. There still isn't any what we would call a concrete news story. It takes like a week or so for us to have the full picture of anything truly cohesive. I would say that if we could just limit our lens into these places so we don't keep
1: checking these different
0: channels, you'd probably
1: have greater mental health. I mean, I put my phone on airplane mode a a couple hours before bed, for me, that's been very beneficial. I think it's just taking some small steps in your life to really sort of be self-aware of the situation we find ourselves in. Yeah. How do you justify
0: price when thinking about experiences in life? You recently traveled. How did you think about what that cost in terms of monetary value? Obviously, it was a really good experience, and it was something that is unique to what you had how how do you think about price when it comes to certain experiences whether it is travel or whether it is uh, just going to a concert somewhere or going to an event or you know obtaining something that you enjoy experiencing how do you think about price when these things come along
1: it's interesting so if i think about day-to-day say for example buying a movie ticket buying a video game buying a pair of shoes whatever Something like that, I would say I'm kind of looking at it on a cost per hour, cost per use basis, for example. Um, But then, like you mentioned, we just took a big trip to Iceland, spent a week driving around the whole outside of the place. For something like that, I'm fortunate enough to be in the position where I can do that and not have to really worry about rent or my food. So it's like, okay, this is a pretty big outlay, but this is the kind of thing it's never going to be easier for me to do it. And it's going to be the kind of experience that. I want to be collecting. I don't think I'm ever going to be on my deathbed saying, man, I wish we hadn't taken that big trip to Iceland. And I'm talking about, I don't know, what about you? I'm curious what you think on this. I wish I had your just ability to
0: justify these things, but kind people would call it frugality. Wiser people would probably call it cheapness. Somebody at work a while ago, and he said, yeah, I'll buy your beer. What are you talking about? And I'm like, but that's, that's my drink. I should pay for that. And he's like, I am so cheap all the time if when i go out though i am going to be charitable i am going to think about my friends i'm going to buy whatever i want and whether it's nachos or beer or dinner and i'm just going to have a good experience and then for tomorrow i'm going to take the train to work and that's mm-hmm. the best way for me to save money at that given point if you can divide those two things and just be aware of what you're doing in terms of price and then in order to live a happy existence removed from the way perhaps that you make money that's where you can separate those two halves of things justifying the price is about making yourself happy mm-hmm. so if you can find a way to can do that with conviction i think you're doing it right and that's an ability that i'm trying to teach myself
1: yeah the way i, a the way I see it is obviously not with everything like i try to i'm pretty cheap about like lunches and things like that but if i'm going out and going out for drinks or whatever, I would rather spend twice as much for a great time and then be satisfied rather than like sort of nickel and dime my way through several unsatisfying nights out. So just have a really good time and then you're not going to have that itch as much in the future. So I think you're maximizing in the moment.
0: Yeah, it's definitely a matter of self-confidence. So you can know that, yep, tonight is the night where I'm going out or nope, this is the pair of shoes that I'm going to buy. This is going to be whatever purchase that I am making and I'm going to do it with confidence and then the next time somebody says, hey, your car is dumb. Why'd you buy that? You can say, I love my car. What are you talking about? <laughs> or, or you say, uh, like, hey, do you want to go out and get drinks You know, on Saturday? And you say, you know what? I went out and I had a really good night on Friday. I'm going to pass on this one, but let's go out and do it another time. I think it's really a matter of Self confidence and knowing that you made the right decision, and if you didn't make the right decision on a particular purchase or experience, then you know you can you can live with that mistake, and it doesn't cripple you to your core.
1: <laughs> you got some sort of Irish Catholic self hate thing going on
0: over there. <laughs> it's it's really uh, man. There's like no, there, I guess I guess my I guess I'm half Catholic to a degree, but I think I've set foot in a Catholic church maybe four times in my life. So
1: oh, that that, that self denial stuff that runs deep.
0: <laughs> ah! <laughs> Catholicism. That's the uh, that's the black coffee of religions right there. <laughs> um, there's no sweetening
1: to it. Jeez, yeah. Uh, you want to know, if know something, if you're about that here's something? Here's something interesting. We could just cut it out. I don't know if we want to actually put it on air but I I heard Mm -hmm. a really interesting point that kind of with the current uh, identity politics atmosphere, we've sort of replaced the Catholic original sin with things like privilege, white this, white that. So we've kind Mm of kept that old framework of original sin, but it's just melded and morphed into our new political and social environment.
0: There's always going to be like, everybody wants to feel guilty to a degree, but they still will fight back against it like, like the Catholics of old, you're like, "Yeah, of course I know I suck, but I hate you for pointing that <laughs> out. <Day laughs> his fault <laughs> uh, Next question, this is where it takes a fun turn. What's oh. the deal with loot crates in games? We all should I explain what a loot crate is?
1: I'd say so. Yeah, yeah.
0: A loot crate is a digital good, a digital piece of property that you can buy probably for real money. You would put in a credit card and you would pay a dollar, you pay five dollars. Something digital would come out of it within the video game, make your, make your gun shinier or stronger or make you look cooler, or it may be cosmetic, something that attaches itself to your character that's in the loot crate, or it may be something that actually affects the way that the game plays. Nevertheless, there's a lot of this stuff going on in particularly very large, budgeted games at the moment, and they've been popping up in a lot of them. They've been in uh, the Middle Earth game, Shadow of War. They've shown up in Battlefront 2. They've showed up in Call of Duty. Anything that is costing a lot of money to make, seems like Loot Crates are showing up in there. My questions are, are Loot Crates gambling? Are they part of the experience of engaging with that AAA video game piece of media? Are they too transparent, or are they not transparent enough in terms of what they offer in terms of value or the experience that they are enhancing. So what is the deal with loot crates? That's
1: interesting. I think on the business side I'm talking out of school here I don't actually know but my understanding is if you think about sort of your big budget AAA video game um, they're typically still around $60 and they have been for about 10-15 years whereas the actual cost to create these things I can only imagine has increased exponentially over the last 10 years as the comp- Technology gets more complex. You need a social media infrastructure. You need a support infrastructure. I think loot crates are sort of a band-aid. Basically have helped companies not have to raise the price on games. Um, good or bad, I think that's why they do it. Now, from the user experience side, I think there's really two kinds of loot crates, right? There's ones that give you a better chance of victory, a better chance of whatever your win condition is. And there's other ones that are more about personalization and expressing yourself. I prefer to see in games the ones that are more about getting a cool skin for your character, just sort of being able to put more of your own fingerprints on something. Whereas the ones that it's like, I can pay for an advantage, that's okay, I guess. But to the point of gambling, uh, I play a lot of Magic the Gathering. It's a collectible card game. Something I don't see as much in the loot crate industry is expected value. So typically if you're looking at buying a booster pack, which is like 15 random cards for like any card game, you can go online and pretty easily figure out what your true expected value for that pack is. And obviously there's going to be variance because it is random. But you kind of know what you're getting into. You know the likely outcomes. I don't think there's that kind of transparency yet with loot crates, which is why I think they, they hem a little closer to gambling than any sort of investment or rational decision. I'd be curious what you think about this, though.
0: I think they're becoming more and more a part of the experience of participating in the ecosystem that is the larger games. And exactly like you said, when we moved from PS2 and Xbox up to PS3 and Xbox 360, the price of games rose from about 50 bucks to about 60 bucks. High definition assets and employ an entire team to maintain the infrastructure of a modern game is exponentially high. It's not just a bunch of people in their free time, like a a squad of 30 people putting together a video game at this point, it's teams of 300 building Assassin's Creed to support what you expect. The level of fidelity that you expect in graphics and storytelling and engagement requires a lot more funding at this point. The way that they offset that is with cosmetic or perhaps game altering things that are in loot crates. Now, the original loot crate was uh, the World of Warcraft subscription. Like it was a way to maintainers. It was fifteen bucks a month, on top of actually buying the game, and people accepted that because it was part of the experience. The experience was a continuous thing. Now these days, you can still buy a sixty dollars game. You can buy Battlefront and participate in it and not buy a darn thing. I don't think that there's any, anything in the loot crates in Battlefront. I know there isn't anything in the loot crates in Destiny that actually gives you a, a tactical advantage over anybody else in the game. It is not what they call pay to win. It is something in order to participate in the grander experience of the game, playing, receiving rewards, and continuing on within that within that marketplace. I think loot crates are a little bit more part of that experience. You would feel weird if you didn't buy them on occasion because your character would probably look a little bit drab. I think they are becoming more part of the experience, and I think the more that they become transparent, people won't feel quite as prickly about their appearance embedded into the live
1: aspect of the games. So you you think something, I don't know, maybe it is too meta, but just an idea of what the drop rates are. So if you're looking for the BFG 9000 out of it, it'd be interesting to know like my chance of getting this are two to 3%. And then that would let people push back a little bit if they're like, that's just too low for what I'm spending here. The company could react by actually sort of adjusting the pricing or the availabilities to line up with their audience.
0: Yeah, I don't think that they would ever actually reveal the odds of receiving a very specific thing because you would see that your chance of getting the BFG is 0.001% and you say, well, I'm not going to grind for this, are you kidding? Yeah, that's, that's a, longer, a longer discussion, but it mm-hmm. leads directly, directly into the next thought that I had. Uh, recently, Activision, the publisher of Destiny and Call of Duty, has received a patent that can funnel players toward game situations where their microtransactions or their, or their loot crates or what have you, where those purchases are basically teed up, meaning that they can make somebody into a game situation where their microtransaction, either something that they just purchased or something that they have shown interest in, are kind of fed. So say you bought a, a sniper rifle in Call of Duty. I don't know if this is possible, but this is, this is a hypothetical. Say you just bought that via a microtransaction or you received it in a loot crate. The, the next game that you find yourself in happens to favor that weapon. And all of a sudden you run the tables because you've got this jacked up weapon and you just realize that, man, this is the best purchase that I ever made. They received a patent to introduce that type of motivational matchmaking. What's more, they also might put you in a game where if you have demonstrated that you have a, a predisposition to uh, a, ter- a certain type of game, like you always want to go close range, you always want to use a shotgun. They may match you with somebody who is particularly good at using a shotgun in hopes that that person may coach you to learn that skill better. And maybe that person also has a weapon that they got through a microtransaction as well. My question, is this type of matchmaking icky and gross and intrusive? Where would this tactic be non-intrusive, this kind of Slight hand of God steering people toward uh, toward an optimal situation for the game that they happen to be playing. That is interesting. I hadn't heard
1: about that. I think, I mean, there's pro- I'm sure there's positives and negatives here, but I'm I'm seeing a lot of positives with that because it adds another layer of reward and experience to these smaller kind of financial engagements you're having with the company. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, that is pretty cool because there's, I mean, I, I'm sure you've seen it too in various games. Like you get some cool new thing, but it's not actually useful really in whatever you're doing. And you're like, okay, that's a neat, goes into the backpack. I think that's a neat reward system. And on the other side, whether they're trying to steer you into spending more money, eh, we'll see. That's that's interesting. I hadn't heard about that yet.
0: Yeah. I think it's cool the way that they make you f- try to feel better about your purchase it's like when, it's exactly what you just described. If you come across the sweetest sword of awesome, but all of a sudden you're up against a bunch of archers and you never get to get close enough to use that thing, you're kind of like, why the heck did I spend $4 on this?
1: Yeah. It's, it's psychological, it's interesting. Yeah. I was gonna say, it's like, if you think about it in the real world, like I go to the store and buy a pair of running shoes, like I can go for a run. I mean, unless maybe I buy them in the dead of winter, but like I'm gonna be able to use that thing I just yeah. purchased. So I see it as a positive. What about the way that it tries
0: to validate those smaller purchases that you made? Um, Do you think it motivates a certain type of addictive personality to like, wow, all I have to do to get through to this particular situation is pony up, you know, $1.99 for uh, a little bit of a power up and it's you, man, knowing that this exists would drive me insane because if it didn't put me in an optimal situation for the thing that I just purchased, I'd be like, where the heck is my learning algorithm that makes me feel good about myself?
1: (laughs) Where's my sword fight? I think, man, I think there's really two levels to it. There's, like, adults who can really figure this stuff out and kind of see behind the curtain a little bit. But then you've also got kids playing on their parents' phones where, like, they already have situations where kids are spending 1000 bucks on Super Gems or whatever, and the parent's like, what mm-hmm. just happened? Imagine if that kid had another layer of addictive signaling built into it. Uh, I don't know. Maybe that's a bigger question about kids and their interactions with these, particularly microtransactions that are just designed as a slot machine. What if they had the equivalent
0: of like an air marshal somewhere inside of the game and they're just like, they're plants from the publisher's. And the moment you you get you get matched up with somebody, it's like, hey there, young sport. I see you have the shotgun plus two of shining. Let's see how I'm going to coach you on this. Wow, well, I met a stranger online, and he's going to help me get really good with the shotgun. I Hello, feel really really good about this. And then and like, oh, and then, and then the Lone Ranger rides, rides rides off into the distance, and you're like, oh man, that guy was so like, cool. don't forget to buy your works keys for Activision or something. <laughs> like hello fellow children (laughs) yeah hello there (laughs) like oh wait that was just steve buscemi in a backwards baseball hat (laughs) man uh, uh, when do you you can't see these people you can't you think you have transparency and all of a sudden this whole thing starts turning into a weird uh, a paranoid stage play um like man this is this is getting fascinating
1: i think i think with the transparency and speed of information now there's a lot more checks and balances there because you know one weird tweet from somebody implying something's amiss, and you could suddenly have an entire player base mad. So I think yep. they do self-police to some extent.
0: Yeah, especially considering if there is overbearing loot boxes right now, games will get review bombed on Steam, which I think is a—that's a longer debate. I think um, that's weird and gross, um, but we we can talk about that another time. Make make a note sure. of that. We'll we'll talk about talk about that another time. Yeah, the reviews um, industry. Oh God, I. Oh man, P, fans' interactions with what they what they want to be to consider like honored by uh, review scores and things like that are just like oh, God. What, what are we even doing here? Anyway, um, while we're on the topic of how we participate with pieces of media or pieces of entertainment, sure. I want to talk about VR for a quick moment. What is VR the future of? when it can simulate an experience, what is VR the future of?
1: I think the easy one is the future of gaming. Um, I mean, if you can get over sort of the adoption costs and everything and getting people bought in, I think it really will kind of lead the way. For example, I very recently discovered one of my friends owns an HTC Vive, which is one of the main VR headsets. I've been over to his place a couple times to play with it, and while the technology's not there yet, the resolutions are kind of low, games are a little clunky, Like it's it just looks like a look at the future. It's really, really cool. Now, for things outside that, I think it would be great to see some sort of historical records done in VR. For example, like one of my favorite podcasts is Dan Carlett's Hardcore History. He does like nine-hour epics about great events. For example, like the wars in Persia, World War One, the Eastern Front, things like that. If you could take that long form storytelling and create an immersive sort of three-dimensional experience along with it. That would be amazing. I mean, that may be something more niche. and I don't, I don't know, man. There's, it's, a, it's a quite a frontier, and it's hard to really nail down. I'm curious what, what you're looking forward to. I, I think if video games can become art,
0: then let's compare them to film because they are a visual and audio medium. They are very similar in that case. People started thinking about, okay, Citizen Kane was probably the movie that made everybody sit up and realize perhaps a little bit after the fact That film was a medium that is incredibly powerful. Everybody wanted to know what the Citizen Kane of video games was. That's a long debate because it has to take into consideration what Citizen Kane was when it entered into the arena of film and also what the legacy of Citizen Kane has become as a movie. What I'm wondering about now, what is the Citizen Kane of virtual reality going to be? Because have you have you seen Citizen Kane? I haven't. The interesting thing about Citizen Kane is well, there are a couple of factors. One, it was the passion project of an outsider of the industry, so Orson Welles, somebody who hadn't made a movie before, made a movie. Um, it played with the narrative structure, way that no one had thought a movie could. It included very what we would consider today to be modern cinematography placement of the camera how the camera moved how characters sort of danced around with the camera it did it in ways that older films where the camera was often static and basically just shot stage plays citizen kane got around that and it kind of helped to pioneer the visual language of movies as we recognize it today vr right now is trying to simulate either a human experience or plug a video game into some vr goggles what is going to happen when somebody, an outsider of technology, an outsider from the, the audio-visual medium, you know, maybe a non-developer or, or maybe it is a, a coder of some sort, that person comes in and does something that we have never thought of and creates an audio-visual interactive experience in virtual reality simulating an experience that nobody has thought of before? And we might not know it's happened. For for twenty years after the fact, the same way that no one really realized what Citizen Kane had done until twenty something years after the fact, because of you know there's a longer story about a media magnate burying Citizen Kane because it criticized a newspaper that he owned. That's a longer story. Um, look up Citizen Kane, kids. Look it up. Um, and the legacy of Citizen Kane. But I think we are going to have to wait for an outsider to enter into the VR arena to do something weird, remarkable, and cool.
1: Yeah, I think that's a good point. I think right now, VR is pretty much just for gaming enthusiasts. I know they do porn in VR. I think there's some movies that are experimenting with VR. I'm yeah. not sure what the killer app's going to be or like that paradigm shift. I, it's something we have to keep an eye on, really.
0: Yeah, I'm not entirely inter- interested in like what a movie director, like an established movie director, like, uh, Alejandro Inarritu, the guy who directed Birdman, I think is making a VR experience. I think Danny Boyle, who directed Slumdog Millionaire, is working on some VR stuff. I'm not terribly interested in what those folks have are trying to do. With it. I want to know what like Imagineer would make uh, for a mm-hmm. VR experience. Somebody with just like an outsider perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, that that'll come, but I think I think it's something to definitely keep an eye
1: on. Yeah, I would love to see Hardcore Henry 2 in VR.
0: Uh, man, when I went to Rome uh, last year, uh, I was in a taxi from the airport going into the city for the first time, and I was nauseous and jet lagged, and I w- it was, the taxi was unlicensed, so I thought I was going to be mugged or killed or something like that. <laughs> Perfect. And all of the billboards and all of the bus signs were ads for Hardcore Henry, but in Europe, it was released as simply, without the Henry. <laughs> and it, the, the poster was just an upside down shot, first person view of, two do- of a dude shooting two guns. And I have never seen the movie. At some point, I probably will. But I was so nauseous and so jet lagged and so scared that that is forever going to be my association with the movie.
1: <laughs> well, um, you'll be happy to know the movie is somewhat nauseating. So, <laughs> I mean, you can you can find it streaming anywhere. It's, it's yeah. pretty cool. Definitely worth a watch. Yeah, I
0: think it's I think it's on Showtime. Like I'll I'll look that up on the app. Yeah. Um, what experiences have we been robbed of? in modern times
1: what experience have we robbed ourselves of i can only speak for us coastal dwellers Mm -hmm. but uh family and like a real community Mm. because for me i have a bunch of acquaintances in passing i have some friendships i'm developing but i don't have really around here at least that support structure where i can be like i gotta go watch my cat Mm. like it's, it's a production to figure that kind of thing out so, like as we get more disparate, we get more information, we get more opportunities and access, we sort of leave behind the small town, we leave behind that the people you've known since you were a child, where you can really have someone who knows you as well as you know yourself, outside of like maybe your spouse. It's weird
0: the way that the more we have, the less we trust people. You just said that there probably isn't anybody really in the area. That you would say, hey man, I got a piece out. Uh, something's come up. Can you take an eye, keep an eye on my cat? your whole Twitter feed. How many people in there? How many people in your textages recently would you trust to like come and keep an eye on your cat? You know, the experience of of knowing that there is a community of people potentially looking out
1: for you. I guess we have been robbed of that. Yeah, to some degree, to some degree, and then also I think there's a certain level of I mean, maybe this is roast into glasses, but a certain level of peace that it seems like the previous generations had where now we have such an influx of information. And I'm like, oh boy, is Antifa going to burn down Boston? Where in the past people are just like, how are the potatoes doing? Like, how are my kids? Yeah. yeah.
0: What What about the second question? Have you on purpose or otherwise robbed yourself of a particular experience? I think...
1: There's a certain element of maybe surprise that you don't get anymore. Because I would imagine like Mm -hmm. I wasn't around for it, but like when the first Star Wars came out, people maybe saw a trailer and they're like, Oh, maybe I saw Mark Hamill and something before. But like this looks cool, let's go see it. Whereas now you have whole scenes are spoiled, you have reviewers getting a hold of the movie beforehand, you have deep knowledge of all the actors and what they've been in and they've already done interviews about their characters and their roles, it seems like there's a little less kind of going into things blind, which, you know, it's good and bad, I think. It's the
0: gots to know factor. You, if the information is there about Last Jedi, wait, was that? Yeah, we mentioned Last Jedi. Good. Okay. That's uh, every single episode. Good. Good. Um, I got to do the math and figure out when when that's going to come out. Yeah. Um, and how are we going to sync that up with the show? Anyway, um, yeah, I think we do deliberately rob ourselves of uh, certain degrees of surprise. I went and saw Thor Ragnarok yesterday, and mm-hmm. I knew that Sam Neill was somewhere in the movie, and I was looking for him the entire time, and I couldn't find him. And then I had to read up on it later because I'm a moron because I had to know. <laughs> it was, like, some dude in the background with, like, two lines. And like, oh, that was him. Like, oh, okay. Like, And you, you think about this stuff so much brain space no wonder no wonder we can't really live live without the stress and active brain cell firing you know that's our resting state is absorbing information there we don't the experience of quiet complacence has kind of uh faded away from us in modern times i guess that's my my response to the to the first question what experience yeah. have we
1: been robbed of one thing I would recommend if you haven't tried it yet is find like a, a float tank sh- place somewhere around where you live. Mm. Um, I did that one time. I don't I don't think you need to do it more than a few times, but it's really cool just to be like in complete darkness, silence, floating in room temperature, body temperature water, because mm. it completely removes all the constant inputs and outputs I was used to. And I'd say I got bored, I got bored like 90 minutes in, but like it's definitely worth doing just to sort of shut down all the input output you've got i'm
0: going to reveal something about myself um senior year of college i had to get gym credit in order to graduate and wouldn't you know it that uh, the school offered a meditation class that counted as physical physical education okay and what did we do well we went into a room and meditated one time a week for four straight weeks and that was apparently enough to uh, get the job done
1: nice your and, biceps uh, must have been great
0: yeah well that's why that's where i learned a little bit about about meditation and man it's, it's real. That kind of sensory uh, t- tapping into that is, a, is the real deal. So if anybody uh, is flippant about whether or not you think that you can calm yourself down with a little bit of instruction, you can discover a lot about how to r-
1: remove your brain from your body, to be perfectly mm-hmm. honest. And I think there's a pretty decent app infrastructure now for meditation as well. So you can get guided experiences with journals and cues and things like that. Totally,
0: Yeah. Shifting gears one more time, when is content the experience? Capital T, capital E. When is content the experience? I'm thinking now of Destiny, Ghost Recon, Wildlands, The Division, these ac- more active MMOs, if we're being perfectly honest with ourselves. Right now, Bioware are the creators of traditional Baldur's Gate, I believe, and also... More recently, Mass Effect and Dragon Age and, and that stuff. They're working on their own, their own cool persistent science fiction blaster piece. These are continuous content as a service devices. They aren't necessarily difficult to engage in. There's nothing in Destiny that's really hard. Um, but nevertheless, you want to engage with them because they are living worlds. From your perspective, what entity do you either fear or hope will adopt this delivery method, this content as an experience, what form do you think that might take? Do you think it's gonna be limited to a video game? Or do you think there's a, sort of an a untapped pasture with this, this is the content, and just being around this content and living within this content is going to be the experience?
1: I mean, it seems like pretty much everything we engage with now is just full of quote, quote, content, whether you're trying to like, Figure out who's going to do your HR work. They're going to send you a white paper. I'm not sure, man. Maybe maybe you kick this one off. I think we
0: are. I think. Well, you 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 said it correctly, and I think you win the prize. Um, uh, everything is content, and everything is a service at this point. Um, people want recurring revenue in their companies. They don't want to have to f- sell uh, 10,000 widgets a year to keep the lights on. They want. 10,000 people to subscribe to the widget subscription. That's why they wanted uh, everybody who bought CDs at Suncoast to subscribe to Entertainment Weekly instead of buying the new Smashing Pumpkins CD, because a recurring revenue stream is more predictable, and wouldn't you know it if the the markets love something that's a little bit more predictable. I think it's interesting the way that it has permeated our entertainment, the way that we interact with um, a world experience. And I -hmm. I guess I'm going to touch on World of Warcraft again, because that was content, and it was also a service that you had to pay for on a regular basis. I think it's just interesting that we have to let this stuff kind of be around us at all times. A lot of people, I'll use Destiny as an example this time, when there isn't new stuff to do in Destiny, when people have completed all the content, they get grumpy like little sugar-deprived children, and they want there to be more content. What do I want to adopt this delivery method? I think there is a future form of entertainment that is a little bit more multimedia that I would like to to have this happen. It's, it's really difficult because there's always going to be different arenas that certain pieces of media work better in or worse in, you wouldn't necessarily want to have to go to uh, Thor Ragnarok, the live show to get part of the story of that and then go see the movie. Um, And it's all included in the subscription to the Marvel movies that you bought. I think there is a version, a multimedia creative vision that may exist at some point. And you would go to the equivalent of Spotify for one part of it, go to the equivalent of Netflix for another part of it. You would play the game. And if you had a really smart, cohesive vision for it, I think there is a future to be had there, the content as an experience, content as a service.
1: my My, my temptation is to jump back to a Star Wars- based example, but I'm not going to. Uh, mm-hmm. So granted we're doing a podcast, I'm also a big podcast listener. Um, There's like a little sort of comedy podcast ecosystem in LA right now that's really thriving, right? So it's like the Joe Rogan experience, Tom Segura's podcast with his wife, which is called Your Mom's House. You've got like Bert Kreischer, Bill Burr. All these guys now are doing podcasts along with stand-up. So they've kind of grown from like you might just see them when they come to your local comedy club to now you've got their Netflix special. You've got their podcast. On Instagram they're doing prank wars and just doing them like 60 seconds at a time You know, they sell fun t-shirts that are like tied into the various like in jokes that come through on like three different podcasts You have to like piece it all together into one experience. It would be cool if for example if I'm a big uh, say Game of Thrones nerd I could have like a $10 monthly subscription It's like anytime a Game of Thrones game comes out anytime. There's a new book anytime the show is on air I kind of just have all of this stuff because it's no longer enough to just read the book, right? Everyone wants to have a show, a podcast, an after show. Like it's getting easier and easier to just totally geek out and deep dive onto any one thing that you might be interested in.
0: Yeah, I am really excited for that kind of future. I think it's going to be tricky because no one wants one one particular person to be the creative vision that binds all of that stuff together. Um, mm-hmm. because that means it's harder for other people to do okay with that financially. The reason the Marvel movies have succeeded is because one guy is basically the producer of all of it and he maintains the whole creative vision and the business side of it. Um, I don't know how creative he is terribly. I think he's just a really good people person. He's a good yeah. organizer. Great um,
1: organizer.
0: Because if you, if you think about it, they have the showrunners for the Game of Thrones show, and then they have George R.R. Martin, and then they have all the people who are developing the video games for it and the board games for it and, and everything in between it's difficult to say to have an overriding god figure of this creative venture who says mm-hmm. this is how it's going to be this is how all this stuff connects and i'm everything comes across my desk
1: right and if that ends up being yeah. some middle manager it's going to be super lame because yeah like intro- the marvel movies how <laughs> oh, there you go i mean yeah. the marvel movies are formulaic and i think there's a certain like they kind of get a pass because of nostalgia and it's just another american religion yeah. When you have something sort of niche or it was niche like Game of Thrones, you can't just hand that off to a project manager and be like, hey, we need you to maintain this universe for us. Like, yeah. You need that crazy genius writer who might die of diabetes. Like He <laughs> creates these things. Is, are we talking about George R. R. Martin again? Maybe. <laughs> yeah. Um,
0: yeah, that's, that's a long, another longer topic. Um, but yeah, I like, I like the conclusion that we came to on that. Okay, last, last topic before the lightning round. What will be the next vinyl record? Revival experience
1: so what have we engaged with? That's just grown so far beyond its roots and we would want to we
0: would want to regress to Perhaps the original vintage Form what out there is begging to be what what interactive piece of something what experience are we begging to have? Returned to us
1: big question. I don't think it's
0: gonna be it's not like the landline telephone it's not no. something – you wouldn't give up the uh, – I don't know, man. That's that's a tough one because it wouldn't be like, oh, yeah, the landline. I'm getting rid of my cell phone. I'm getting a landline. Like, yeah, well, dude, your cell phone is like 12 other things in, in addition to your phone if you
1: even use it as a phone. I mean, like, maybe maybe something around social media because the social media things we've used have gotten so complex and so crazy over the last while. Like I hardly even see anything that my friends post on social media anymore. Now it's all influencers, brands, and Mm -hmm. uh, content producers. I'd say there maybe there's a spot to just get back to basics. Like, remember when MySpace was like first getting popular? It was just like you and your friends like putting up what song you were listening to because it made you look really thoughtful, things like that. Yeah. You don't get that much of that anymore. Now it's like, oh God, what what happened now?
0: Yeah. Like social media kinda
1: lost the social aspect in some way.
0: Yeah. I I remember reading something a long time ago about what Twitter is. And the person said that Twitter is you posting your text message conversations that you are having with your friends because they're funny. Originally. Originally, (laughs) that's what Twitter was. You're like, like, Joel's a moron. It's like, (laughs) <laughs> okay, great. Like, and you're just putting that on Twitter because, like, haha, let's let's let everybody else laugh at how stupid our conversations are. Yeah. Um, but then it turned into something more. Um, but I think you're on to something in terms of uh, the way that we communicate with people. And I think that the the intimacy that has been lost with communication over social media, maybe we go back to, is there ever gonna be a world where we decide that, no, Texting is stupid. I'm going to write a letter. Hmm.
1: Uh, I don't know, man. I mean, wedding invites still do that, right? Yeah. Uh, I think one of of the podcasters, I'm a big fan of Ari Shafir. Kind of a weird dude, but he's completely abandoned the smartphone, and now he has like a Nokia flip phone. Hmm. And all of his conversations now are voice conversations. And he's had some interesting things to say about it, that it's like there's a lot more depth and connection when you're actually just calling people to talk to them. And I think even... Even podcasting is sort of a throwback because in your daily life now, you don't sit down with somebody and have an uninterrupted hour conversation about interesting things. Maybe you have an hour-long meeting about what your calendar looks like, but you Uh. don't just sit down and talk about a variety of things that are a little more close to the heart. So I think we already are seeing just a little bit of that return to long form, but it'll be interesting to see where it goes from here.
0: Yeah, I think this podcast with you and I kind of grew out of our love of derailing meetings that we were sitting in. (laughs) Yeah, like, yeah. Uh, I'm sick of having this uh, formal conversation. Let's see how badly we can get this off track. All right, dude. <laughs> Again,
1: <laughs> something, something Star Wars. <laughs> yeah, something,
0: something, something Rogue One. Um, yeah, I think uh, the vinyl, the vinyl record was us realizing that we wanted to uh, hold something physical, mm-hmm. a f- piece of physical media, and there's a there's a fragility to to a vinyl record. There was also uh, a little bit of personality uh, of building a collection of physical stuff. And when we own so, so many digital goods, which is something that we've talked about in this episode, uh, having a physical piece of media was kind of a nice little throwback. Oh, yeah, dude. Realize,
1: realize. I'm, holding, I'm holding magic cards right now. They're made of yeah. paper. They're mine. They get yeah. beat up. They get worn. I'm like, I remember when I got this. I remember where I put this. Nothing yeah. on my phone has that kind of record on it, really.
0: No, I, I wrote an article uh, a while, uh, about a month or so ago, um, because Aziz Ansari, who is the creator of the Netflix show Master of None, he was also on Parks and Rec, he right. said that after season, making season two of Master of None, he got rid of his smartphone. And it's like, well, yeah, dude, that's fine for you because you're on the cover <laughs> of G- GQ and right. you have a Netflix show and you can you win, you win awards. Yeah. Uh, like he just, he just could just, just disappear yeah. and he'd be fine. Yeah. Yeah, Christopher Nolan, uh, you know, w- w- the highest paid director in the world right now probably, probably going to win an Oscar for Dunkirk. He doesn't have uh, a cell phone. I don't even think he has email.
1: Um, but here's the question. How many assistants does he have? Exactly. He's got a bunch of dudes following him around have smartphones. Like
0: reading, reading his emails and saying, uh, here's, here's what somebody emailed to you. Do you want this much money or do you want more money? He's like, He's no like yeah, I don't,
1: I don't have a smartphone.
0: Like, uh, I, want, I want more money for more Batman. Somebody get me Tom Hardy. I want to put him in a mask and <laughs> ah, not let bring
1: him it. back. Bring him back. Give me. Yeah. I want. I want a Bane prequel, a full movie that's just Tom Hardy with a goofy accent. I would go see that. Uh,
0: man, Tom Hardy. He just sits there in an airplane for most of Dunkirk, and he rules so hard. He's so like, ah, uh, god, that dude. I need to watch the rest of that show that he has on FX uh, called Taboo, yeah. where he's basically a guy who comes back from Africa and gets shows up in in England and just. He's just gangster,
1: dude. He uh, it's, ter- there's, he, it's terrifying. There's a show on Netflix, uh, Peaky Blinders. It's about Peaky Blinders. Like yeah, yeah, it's about a British gang, and Tom Hardy plays uh, like a Jewish, like uh, bootlegger gangster. That
0: dude can act. Yeah, he's terrifying. He shows up for like two scenes every once in a while, and he's just this. <laughs> <laughs> right. And then he just, you know, cuts somebody's Achilles tendon and throws him in the Thames and be like, you're not going to mess with that guy. Are you kidding? You don't don't fuck with pain. We can have have a show about Tom Hardy. We'll do that next time, starting with uh, Star Trek Nemesis. Um, (laughs) Anyway, are are you ready for the lightning round? Yeah, I'm ready. Okay. Cue the music. The lightning round. You have one, you get one adjective. To describe the following experiences. And I'm gonna throw them out there. I'm gonna to try to answer as well because that would I'll be mine I don't say yours. Yours, But Yeah, yeah. Um, one adjective to describe the following experiences. Adjective number one. What do you feel when you use your phone? What's the adjective there? Busy. Resigned. <laughs> uh, next one. Walking barefoot. Connected.
1: Liberated. Uh, number three, staring at the ocean. Scary, man. Ocean Ocean is a terrifying beast.
0: I was exactly going to say uh, terrifying or uh, helpless. Um, yeah. Okay, number four, sitting at your desk. Stiff. <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, thoughtful, I suppose. Uh, okay, next one. Uh, simply waiting. Quiet. Oh man. Uh, 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 anxious. Oh, uh, there we go. <laughs> uh, <laughs> next one. Uh, petting your pet. Proud. Yeah, joyful. Yeah, my cat's a shit. Yeah. Competitive video games. What do you feel when you play competitive video games?
1: Flow. Incomplete. I'm gonna. Um, i have to get some clarification on that one. What do you uh,
0: mean? Uh, I feel. I feel like I should. I know what I'm supposed to do, and I know how I ought to execute it. But, um, or in, maybe incapable. Because um, I can see. I can see it, but I, I have trouble executing. I, I guess my hand eye isn't quite there. Uh, non-competitive video games.
1: Relaxing. Just kick back, slash up some monsters as Carol. Call it a day. Yeah, I'm gonna go with relaxing as well. But oh, man.
0: Um. I'll say transported I suppose um, if, if it's going right I think that's where I would want to be um, mm-hmm. competitive sports I feel enraged when I yeah. when I do uh, competitive sports yeah if it's something that I know that I'm good at and I'm, and I'm ready to compete like I'll, I'll I'll bust
1: some heads like I, I completely let loose in that environment I used to I used to kickbox and I did some smoker fights and I think that one it's like a a feeling of completion because you spent three months running up hills and just busting your ass and then it's like win or lose I've completed this thing like I've done it yeah
0: um, next one individual exercise so you're not necessarily competing but what do you feel when you are just going through an individual exercise? Discipline. Pumped. Pumped. <laughs> uh, watching an advertisement on TV. Judgmental. Intruded.
1: Yeah, I've been uh, I've been I've been in this marketing and advertising game too long just to watch yeah. commercials. Now I'm like just judging every second of it. Yeah, yeah me both, man. Um,
0: cleaning your home. Happy. I love cleaning. Just get shit cleaned up. Yeah, I'd say I'd say, um, what do you call it? Recogn- recognized or fulfilled? You know, yeah. you, something that you understood needed to get done, and you did it. And even though you probably didn't want to do it, you did it. And yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, what do you feel when you engage content? And that's Doubtful. contents and quotes. Doubtful. Yeah, I would say judgmental in that case for me.
1: I, I'm like, okay, you wrote this blog post, but like, what's what's new here? Yeah.
0: Yeah, you can see through the matrix code at that point. Eating your favorite food. Mm, just happy,
1: man. I love food.
0: Big food fan. Yeah. Satisfied. Uh, what do you feel? What do you feel when you're seeking food? Potential.
1: Come on, Yelp. I'm like, what is it going to be? What's
0: My head goes straight be? to uh, the Duran Duran song, "Hungry Like the Wolf." <laughs> Either potential or just angry. Depends how hungry. <laughs> Okay, two more. Uh, Second last one. Seeking content. What do you feel when you have to seek content? It's
1: a combination of doubt and exploration.
0: Mm. I feel very, uh, I I think very highly of myself and my good taste. So I feel doubtful as well when I have to go out and find content on a particular topic because uh, that means I'm pretty certain it's going to be something that I... I either already knew or won't be as good as what I had hoped for.
1: Yeah, I think you've slot well into that contrarian
0: community. Yeah, I think I think we're learning a lot about me uh, playing this game. <laughs> um, and, and the last, the last activity uh, that I wanna know the emotion for, when you have to decouple yourself from a digital ecosystem. This means when you have to cancel Facebook or you have to call Comcast and get out of that, or you have to pull out of something that you've kind of participated in. When you have to remove yourself from that ecosystem, what do you feel?
1: It's some combination of lightened and fear of missing out. It's like, I feel better because I don't have this thing I have to have a commitment to anymore. And then it's like, what am I missing when I leave?
0: Yeah, I, I would feel you know phantom pain because you aren't necessarily, was that a good limb that I just chopped off? <laughs>
1: right, yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> was that Was that something productive that I could have used? <laughs> and that's all we have time for hey. that, was a, hey. that was a pretty good lightning round i think i can do better i, I did a good one uh last time i like the lightning round where you kind of throw something out at the end and you try to we should have a timer on that and and do it with a little bit more urgency um yeah, yeah we'll, we'll get yeah. there man this is a uh, yeah, this is always bit. growing yeah right i think that was i think that was a pretty good one yeah anyway uh We can go out with a quick round of plugs. I am Alex Crum. You can find me on Twitter as at Alex underscore Crum. You can find all of my writing on ghostlittle.com. I also write for the Odyssey and um, I believe I have something going up on Laser Time pretty soon as well. I need to talk to those guys. It's all about uh, Diddy Kong
1: Racing, which is turning 20 years old. Wow. Happy birthday, Diddy Kong. Mario's less fun brother. Um, yeah, right. I'm Joel Trog. you can find me on Twitter at J-O-E-L-T-R-O-G, Joel Trog. I'm definitely not writing as many places as this guy, uh, most of my energy goes to my company I work for now, Xylotech, we do AI for customer data and insights, uh, we'll be in New York next week at DWMF if any marketers want to get in touch. Nice
0: well i don't really know how else to uh outro this so i'll probably include some some really cool song
1: snappy tunes yeah, and we'll that be like
0: we'll yeah we'll, we'll be we'll be back again soon so thank you everybody for joining us and we'll see you all next time
1: peace They're going to they're think we've got our shit together. They're going to edit all this stuff out. Um. <laughs>